our communion meditation today is, uh, again, in keeping with this uh, table manners concept. So it's another message from the table manners series. I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And actually, I'll read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's 13 verses. Let's hear God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your, glorif- your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Let's pray. Father, we pray, please awaken our minds to your word. We want to uh, understand it such that we can obey it. And we thank you, Lord, for all the insight that you give. In Christ's name, amen. We are entering into a few uh, topics that are very closely intertwined, and it's kind of hard to tease them apart. It's almost as if I wish we had one sermon level that could kind of knit them all together, but I really do want to finish it in this communion series. So several of the topics, for instance, that uh, kind of meld together as one, and you might not think of it at first, but when you think of it from the perspective of this, you can begin to see how they knit together. But there are aspects of baptism related to this, church membership, excommunication, Uh, whether the elders administer it or whoever. And so all of these things can be teased apart. It's just uh, I have to be kind of careful, and I can't be comprehensive. I mentioned that last time. So now, today's topic asks the question, ought a church restrict communion in any way? Let me say that again. Ought a church restrict communion in any way? This term we refer to as fencing the table. And so there are three, primarily three large perspectives on the Lord's table. First is what's referred to as open communion. That means we offer it to anybody. It's the y'all come method that I mentioned once before. 
And so that is where we would not prevent anybody from coming up here, even if they're an unbeliever. They're just welcome to come up here and partake of the Lord's table. The second, at the opposite extreme, is what's called closed communion. And that's where only members of that church or people in very close affiliation with that church who have already worked it out are welcome to the table. So any visitors that would have come to us today that we'd never met, never seen, that aren't from an organization that we've already vetted would not be welcome to come to the table. That's called closed communion. Open, closed. Now you've got this whole big part in the middle that is referred to as close communion. So you can kind of also regard it as not quite closed and not entirely open. Now this one is obviously broad because it kind of has to account for all of the variations and permutations of what can occur. So typically though, typically though, what's common of close communion is that it is open to those people that are baptized that are in good standing in a member church, evangelical member church. So they are of like faith. And all of this really came about back about the time of the Reformation because then suddenly the church was becoming divided fairly quickly into all of these different bodies. So open, closed, and close. And we practice what we would consider close communion. So there is obviously debate, though, on all of the terms, all of the reasons for this. And so it would be so much easier to just practice open communion, like many churches do in our culture right now. It's just, eh, let's not worry about it. Let's let God sort it out. But yet God has given us responsibility to run his church in certain ways, and in many ways it would be irresponsible to abdicate that which God has given us authority in. Another easy one would be closed. You say, no, none of you can do it except those that we have personally vetted prior to this. So it's the middle part that is a little more tricky, more ambiguous. So the next question I want to ask, so the first question is, ought a church restrict communion in any way? The open people say, no, you have no right doing so. So the second question I want to ask now that I've shared with you that we are a close communion, not open, is what is our justification for restricting communion? Obviously, we ought to have scriptural justification for this. Now, again, I'm not going to be comprehensive, but I'll give three reasons with kind of a brief support for them. First, continuity from Old Testament practices. Now, that right there is something that would not even come up in many churches in America because who cares about the Old Testament? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China, right? Because they just regard the Old Testament as a storybook. It has nothing to do with our lives nowadays. We disagree with that perspective. It is, it is a pervasive perspective in our culture, but it's wrong. And so the Lord's Supper replaces many Old Testament ceremonies and festivals. And those Old Testament practices and festivals were regulated. There were people that participated. There were people that didn't participate. And there were rules of participation. So first was continuity from Old Testament. Second is logical necessity. And let me just give you a couple examples. And this is where I was talking about how many of these final aspects are all knit together. Logical necessity, logic dictates that we do this because first, we regard this as an aspect of the covenant. 
And yet people who have not been baptized have not entered into the covenant. So they ought not participate in this that is a covenantal sacrament. So it just makes no sense to have people come up here who've never been baptized. Second is excommunication. In the text that I read, let me reread a couple of verses. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? So see, Paul is commanding that the church judge the people that proclaim themselves to be within the church. So see, nowadays there is a strong egalitarian trend to say, None of us in any of our churches can judge anybody, whether inside or outside the church. And so it's all just open to everybody doing what they think is right. It's kind of like we're going all the way back to the time of the judges. No, no, that's not the way that we live in God's uh, economy. God has granted to the church certain responsibilities. He requires them of us. Baptism, administering baptism, administering the Lord's table, uh, controlling who we interact with even. And so when we know that there are people who are wolves attempting to pass themselves off, off as sheep, we must address that. And that, an aspect of that is when people come and try to say, oh, there's no difference between anything. So two is logical necessity. Those are only two examples. There are others. And three is the explicit example. We began this whole series commenting extensively on 1 Corinthians 11, where the Corinthians are rebuked for the way that they'd been conducting the Lord's Supper. Paul's discourse to them is offensing of the table. He's giving them explicit instructions as to how this is to be done. So he set the precedent for us as elders, as churches, to do, take action and control this, not to just let it be anything for anybody now, I want to address the term fencing. I didn't want to start with that, but I want to address it because fencing is an unfortunate word to use for this practice because it's not in the Bible, obviously, and yet we can picture cyclone fences, razor wire. Uh, those in South America, you have the big concrete walls with glass stuck in the top. That's not the kind of fence I want you to imagine when we talk about fencing the table, okay? So what I would like you to see instead is what I just saw last week, Tuesday. Uh, Tabitha and I took her father up to visit his wife's grave out in uh, L.A., so we went up to Covina and went to the grave site, and there are clear signs there saying what you're allowed to do to decorate graves that were flagrantly violated for Easter, and so we're walking on these hillsides, and there are just all these ornamentations everywhere. Some of them are religious, many of them not, you know, little eggs and bunnies everywhere. But so some of the graves, going against, against explicit directions from what you're allowed to put on the graves, had little fences around them. I can remember from when my little sister passed away and my mom went back to the grave after it had been done. And at that time, they didn't tamp down as much. And there was a hole in the corner of the grave that she couldn't see the depths of. And she was weeping, crying. She called my father. She wanted that dealt with. She could not stand the thought of water pouring into her daughter's grave and getting down there near the casket. 
So, see, people take this, this burial, very seriously. They're out to. I mean, it's a, it's a Christian practice. We've talked about that in recent weeks. But so, these fences, however, that some people had, they had little white picket fences. They extended from the headstone out around the, the border of the grave. What were they there for? They're only this high. Are they going to prevent me from getting in there? No. I could get in there if I wanted to. But as a sign of respect, what these people had done is bordered it such that they could protect it. They could set it apart as something sacred, as something holy. That's what we ought to more imagine when we're talking about fencing, and you're looking at fencing. It's just these tiny white picket fences that are there to honor what is there within the part that's fenced. So, fencing the Lord's table has negative connotations in our society. We live in a very egalitarian time where everybody wants to make everybody absolutely equal. Now, we can understand that this is kind of being driven by political correctness and a liberal agenda, but it infiltrates the church And we deal with it all the time. You'll see books in the bookstores all the time about this, wanting to tear down history, wanting to tear down what God has uh, put together in structuring his church. It draws distinctions between people, however. This draws distinctions between people. That's why the egalitarians hate it. But yet that's why it's absolutely necessary, because we draw distinctions where God draws distinctions. We have to. If we don't, we might as well not be elders. We might, might as well not run a church. There are many out there that are running churches that are not biblical. In any church that doesn't practice this, discipline tends to break down. There is no discipline. Nobody's held accountable for their sins. And frankly, if people are attempted to be held accountable for their sins, they regard it as an imposition. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is not your job because they've not been trained to expect it, to respect it. So, God draws distinctions in this, and we must draw distinctions in this. And so, I'd like you to also remember the fencing. It's not a prison. It's not razor wire. It is honoring that which God has set apart. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this gift that you've given to us in this table, and we pray that we would honor it rightly. Um... Lord, there is so much opportunity for us to make mistakes, but yet we do ask for guidance. We ask that we would uh, be wanting to do this in accordance with your will. We don't want to be found at odds with your word, at odds with the guidance of your spirit. So we pray, please, please, Father, make us humble, make us accepting of all teaching that would come from a right view of Scripture and to resist anything that doesn't We ask you now to honor uh, your son as we celebrate this Lord's table in his name. Amen.